Welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast, a podcast for Christians spooked by the growing hostility in the culture today. We will tackle a range of topics from current events, persecution, missions, and what it means to be the church. You will gain valuable insights from those experienced working with persecuted Christians around the world, insights we all need to chew on in these strange days. Together, may we help the church stand. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast. I'm Andy Coleman, your host, and I hope this episode finds you well today. I'm glad that you are joining us. And today we are going to be looking at three different ways that you, your family, your church can prepare for persecution, can think through persecution before it hits. And we're going to be looking at lessons that come from Christians, the Christian experience under Soviet communism and how that compared to the Christian experience under Chinese communism, particularly when these communist regimes got set up in the early years, the early decades of that Christian experience. There's a lot for us to pull out of that, and I think it'll be helpful. I covered some material recently in my own personal studies that I just found very insightful, and I wanted to share some of those with you. But before we get into all of that, let me just cover a few other things, and then we'll dive in. I just wanted to share a a really quick update on some of the project work that's being done by the Christian Emergency Alliance. That's the sponsor of this podcast. These have been in many different countries, and they've been mostly smaller-scale projects, but those smaller-scale projects can be really impactful, and they're really fun to be a part of. For example, our ministry was recently able to help out with some of our brothers and sisters in Christ who come from a Muslim background. You might hear the term MBB. If that is a weird term for you, it simply means a Muslim background believer. That's somebody that converted from the Islamic faith and became a follower of Jesus Christ. And they often run into real hard times. They can pay a high cost in the form of losing the support of their family. They may even be kicked out of a home. They may be banished from their tribe. And in many parts of the world, in the Middle East and North Africa and other regions, your tribe, your family, that's your ability to get employment. That's your insurance policy. That covers a lot of stuff for you. That's your ability to to eat and to go about normal life. If that is taken from you, Life becomes very, very difficult, and that's not even including when things get more serious and the family might actually try to target you or harm you in an effort to compel you back into the Islamic faith, and there have been plenty of cases like that. But we've been able to to connect with some of those. Some of those had needs that were not being met, and we were just able to come in through the the sacrificial giving of our supporters, and we want to thank you for that. That was uh, really rewarding to spend time with them in the Middle East, to hear their stories, and to to be able to, to help out in the ways that we could. We've also had some recent project work expanding into new countries for us. These are countries mostly in Asia, such as Vietnam and the Philippines, and so that's just kicking off, and that's exciting. We're still doing work helping the, the local church in Ukraine. Several of you have jumped on to, to help out with that. And we are so grateful for that in our partners, their relay. They want us to relay their gratitude and just their deep thanks for allowing them, equipping them to do the ministry that they've been called to do. 
And right now, that's triage. That's helping out with the church, with Christians, with outreach, and sharing the love of Christ to the hurt and broken and lost around them. Uh, so that has been rewarding to be a part of. And also, we are still still working to help in Afghanistan. And I think this is important just to raise as an introductory matter before this, we get into the meat of our episode. And that's because, by and large, the world's attention has been taken off of Afghanistan. When Ukraine lit up, a lot of the eyes all focused on Ukraine. And it is a human tragedy. It is awful to watch. And it's an area for Christians to be praying over and engaged with and helping. But we also have an obligation to continue to lift up and support our brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan and, frankly, in other parts of the world as well. Uh, there's Christians that are really struggling in places like Burma and Yemen and Saudi Arabia and Iran. And I know that's a tall order and we can't do everything and we certainly shouldn't beat ourselves up about it. But I would encourage you to try to find ways that you can periodically check up on those situations. We at the Christian Emergency Alliance will try to do that. Through our social media, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or these podcasts, we will attempt to bring that type of content to you. I would just put in a plug. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan. There are many that are still in harm's way. The Taliban is still actively hunting several of them. Many of them have chosen to stay and to try to be a faithful witness inside that very difficult country right now. Others have had to leave. But let's just pray about them. Let's lift them up. They're our spiritual family. Uh, they're a part of our family, and we need to be praying and caring and supporting as we can. So once again, I just want to thank all of you who have been supporting our little ministry. We are a small mom-and-pop ministry. We're coming up on two years of existence, even though our volunteers and those that are helping our teams have been around the block uh, a few different times when it comes to missions and work in these parts of the world and also our efforts globally, whether that's in the West or in the Middle East, Asia, Africa, wherever that may be. Thank you very much for your help. If you would like to be a supporter, if you would like to join our little operation, you can certainly do so. You can go visit christianemergency.com. You can sign up. And I just also want to express my deepest gratitude to our volunteers at the Christian Emergency Alliance and our prayer warriors. None of this could be done without you. And we want you to know how grateful we are for your help. With all of that, and maybe some of that material that I just flew through, we can unpack more in future episodes and bring some more detail and content. But with that in mind, let's now turn our attention to the topic of this podcast, and that is the three ways to prepare for persecution for you, your family, your church, things that you can think through right now. And this, some of the topics we're going to bring up, maybe they leave you chuckling. Maybe you think this is alarmist or that th these are not really the types of factors that you need to think through with your family and with others in your church. But I would just caution you and encourage you, yeah, maybe it seems a little bit preliminary. Maybe it seems too early to think through this stuff. But I would just challenge you to go ahead and do so. Do this as a thought exercise. Do this as something just to mull over in your own mind. Um, and I think you'll find value from it because what we're doing is we're looking at this experience from the Soviet Union, from China, and the experiences that they had as Christians in the early phases and really through the middle phases of that experience because the experience of Christians under the Soviet Union did not mirror the experience of the Chinese in the way that the church was able to continue to function, 
the way that the church was able to grow and continue its gospel outreach and the differences that came from those two different experiences. Why were they different? How were they different? What lessons can we extract from that and take away from it? The first factor that you can do to prepare for persecution today as as churches and as Christians is you need to intentionally and diligently train up your lay leadership now. If you're new to the faith, if you if you're not familiar with the term lay leaders, all we mean by that is just your non-official leadership, your non-formally trained leadership. Maybe it's not your pastor or others that are have theological degrees or anything like that, but these are people that are members of the the church but they they have influence, they, people look to them and they have the capacity to be leaders in the church. They need to be intentionally discipled in theology, in missions, in how to be, how to have pastoral care for other people, how to counsel them and help them. Um, That needs to be developed immediately. But if a church is heavily reliant only on formal leaders, those formally trained leaders, paid clergy, then things can go wildly out of whack if something happens to them. You could think of it right now as, well, maybe they just retire, or maybe they take another post at another state and they move. You can imagine the consequences that would come about for a local fellowship in that respect. But what happens if it's something different? What happens if that pastor one day is imprisoned? What happens if that pastor is pressured and is forced to move against their will? In a circumstance like that, the flock that's remaining can be devastated in that gap, and especially if nothing has been prepared to fill that void. Um, We need to understand also in the same respect the vulnerability that's going to come from administrative hierarchies. So if everything is very formal and dependent on these hierarchies, maybe this isn't just in your church, but maybe it's how your church relates to other churches or the churches in your denomination. If all of that is very formal and administrative and bureaucratic, that is a vulnerability for your church's ability to withstand challenges to that hierarchy. The second big thing that you can do as Christians, as a church, is to mentally recognize that church property, your church building, those must be expendable. What do I mean by that? We must be willing to part with our church property if that's what faithfulness to Christ demands. Cannot overemphasize the importance of church property, If we are heavily reliant on buildings and property, that is going to make it much easier to control Christians, to control churches, to control how the gospel is shared, how it is packaged and delivered. And that is not a healthy place to be as a church or as Christians uh, seeking to be light and salt in the community around us. If we are always fearful of losing our property, that's going to affect how we carry ourselves as a church in our local communities. That's really going to affect how leaders conduct themselves. And even if you in the pews may be like, you know what, we're going to just be faithful, and if we have to lose this property, so be it. That may not be the same calculus that your leaders, your pastors are going through, even though all of us as pastors, deacons, elders, lay leaders, church members, we all need to be thinking through this together and just really do that mental exercise would I be prepared to part with this beautiful building, or it's a simple building, maybe it's in a strip mall, I don't know, but would I be willing to part with this if that were compelled of me? If for me to keep this property, I would have to change my faithfulness, if I would have to change the gospel or how we go out and do outreach, how we describe 
faithfulness, how we tell people, talk to people about Christ, would I be willing to part with this? And if those decisions are made ahead of time, it's a lot easier when the tidal wave actually hits and it's more chaotic, frenzied, and confusing. Okay, the third thing that we're going to cover today is that we need to consider the full counsel of Scripture when it comes to things like obedience to the state. Um, we're going to dig into that. We need to know that when the state the state starts to lean on the church, on Christians, it's going to be demanding some concessions. And at first, those concessions can appear to be light. Um, maybe they don't seem very serious, but we also have to recognize that the when concessions are made, they are generally made in piecemeal fashion, bit by bit, in an accelerating, in a growing, crescendoing manner. How does that look? How does that work? And how did that look under the, the communists in China for the Christians? How did that look under the Soviet Union for the Christians? So, like I said, we have case study. We need to know our, our church history. These tactics are really not new. The tactics that could be used in more and more communities, countries around the world in the coming years, they're not new, but we need to relearn it, learn from examples, learn what, what worked well, also learn what cautionary tales are out there. What warning flags can we recognize and perhaps learn from in the future application of the church? The material that I covered uh, recently that really reminded me of how valuable this type of material is, I, I got this really from a Christian, a former missionary, and a, a church leader named Nick Ripkin. That's actually a pseudonym because of some of the places he's worked. He's adopted that pseudonym for the security of those that he was ministering with. But he's written a couple books. There, I, I've enjoyed these books. He wrote one called The Insanity of God. He wrote another one called The Insanity of Obedience, and it's from The Insanity of Obedience that I'm going to be drawing some of our material today, in general at least. The more that of any faith community, whether you're in the United States, you're in Egypt, you're in China, you're in Germany, Bolivia, wherever, in general, the more the faith community is defined by paid clergy, buildings, property, and denominational connections, the easier it is for would-be persecutors to control and to persecute that faith. So just when we're looking at church networks around the West in particular, those are heavily dependent generally on paid clergy, on people that get their paychecks from their roles as pastors, from nice buildings, significant real estate holdings. They have lots of property. The denomination is big, significant, has tremendous resources. Think of the Southern Baptists in the United States. That's the largest Protestant denomination in in the country, and really their activities are among the biggest in the world. So tremendous holdings there, and the holdings aren't bad, and that's I don't want anybody to take that away, that just because you have properties and buildings and paid clergy, that that's all necessarily bad. Not at all. We're very grateful for the tools that those afford and that we're able to use and leverage that for the glory of Jesus Christ. I just want to go through this because we need to make sure that those blessings do not become inadvertent curses through the form of golden handcuffs. We don't want to be dragged down by these resources. Nick Ripken did a very helpful exercise for us by examining the situations as well as the outcomes of the Soviet Union, and he was really looking at the years from 1917 to 1986, and also from China, communist China, from 1948 until 1983. 
Even a brief look at the religious histories of these two countries during the 20th century reveals that these two countries were both marked by a strong Christian faith, but they were also both marked by intense persecution. But beyond those common characteristics, the Soviet experience and the Chinese experience had little in common. Despite a strong faith, the Soviet Christian community experienced little numerical growth in believers during that period of time. But the story in China was very different. Again, initially a very strong faith, and there was severe and intense persecution, but the growth rate that came from the Chinese Christian community was stunning. There were approximately 400,000, maybe 700,000 believers in China around 1948. By 1983, even with that severe persecution, the number of believers in China had increased to somewhere north of 10 million souls. We're recording this in early May 2022. There are estimates that are very hard to track and always take any numbers like this with a grain of salt, but there could be anywhere from 100 million to 200 million believers in China today. So that's just tremendous, tremendous growth. We will return to the podcast momentarily, but first, a word from our sponsor. Being a Christian today can be hard. This is true if you live in a heavily persecuted country like Iran or areas where cultural pressures against Christians are growing fast, like America and Europe. Fortunately, none of us have to stand alone. We are part of a giant body, one huge spiritual family that spans the globe. That is the church. The Christian Emergency Alliance is committed to helping the church stand, regardless of the pressures to come. As a 501c3 nonprofit, the Christian Emergency Alliance strives to help our spiritual family when persecution hits. We also strengthen the church by supporting ministry that makes Christ famous, defends biblical truth, and prepares fellow believers for challenges ahead. You have the opportunity to make a huge impact in this work today. Become a monthly financial ally of the Christian Emergency Alliance by signing up at christianemergency.com. Your support of $25 a month or a gift in any amount will bless those who need help in these darkening days. Help the church stand today, tomorrow, and in the days to come. Register today at www.christianemergency.com. And now, back to the show. So let's take a look at how we can explain these different results. First, we're going to take, we're going to train our eyes on the Soviet Union. What was, what was it like in the Soviet Union? What factors played a role in that church experience in the Soviet Union? When the communists took over the Russia and formed the Soviet Union, they began this period of persecution of the church. The church life in the Soviet Union was largely led by ordained literate clergy. The power and standing of the laity in the leadership of the church was minimal, so they didn't have a lot of those informal lay leaders in the church. At the time when persecution really started to ramp up, church life in the Soviet Union was primarily based in church buildings like we've been talking about. Gatherings typically happened at a facility known for its religious functions, and when believers were forced, because of persecution, to disband from those buildings, and they were forced into small groups like house churches, they would gather in those settings, but only as long as they needed, and as soon as they could, they tried to flock right back into those what they would call real churches. The church in the Soviet Union was strongly anchored to its denominational base. There was a mindset that relied on a central headquarters, kind of a central headquarters type of thinking, with a well-defined administrative hierarchy. The church in the Soviet Union was largely focused on the church building itself and on maintaining the life of that local community through the church building. And the theological stance of the church in the Soviet Union was often anchored in Romans 13. 
and they stressed complete obedience to the state. It was a common experience for the state to demand the church to obey it, and the church did toe the line. They did obey it per the injunctions of Romans 13. When persecution did intensify, it was diabolically piecemeal. Initially, it appeared easy for the church to cooperate with the authorities, but concessions were made in this piece-by-piece basis. And at first, authorities simply wanted to know what was happening in the churches, but eventually more and more control was demanded until it reached absurd levels. And because of the reliance on buildings and property, it was simple for government authorities to exact control and even spy upon the church. The fear of losing property was a very, very strong motivation, particularly for leaders in the churches under the Soviet authorities. It was a very strong motivator for them to cooperate with the government. Even more because of the elevation of clergy, any imprisonment of church leaders proved to be a devastating problem for the churches in the Soviet Union. When church leaders were imprisoned, the church found itself with an alarming leadership vacuum. Okay, so that was the Soviet experience. Um, They had plenty of struggles, plenty of trials, and, and many acts of faithfulness. There's many accounts out there of these Christian leaders who, through faith, paid tremendous costs to be faithful. They lost everything. They went to prison. Many of them died. So tremendous acts of faith. But let's see how this experience in the Soviet Union compares to that of the Chinese Christians under Chinese communism. So the situation in China was very, very different, and the result was completely different as well. As in the Soviet Union, there was a strong faith, and there was severe and intense persecutions throughout these decades. Almost overnight, the Christian faith was declared illegal. Foreign workers were expelled and martyred, and pastors were martyred and imprisoned, and church buildings were burned and turned into other things, horrible things like brothels, secular buildings. They were just reclaimed by the states. By the end of 1948, the church in China was fully aware that the state would not rest until every believer in China had been marginalized, killed, or had recanted their Christian faith. Now, in contrast to the situation in the Soviet Union, however, the church life in China was completely different, and this led to a different experience. So at the beginning of all of that, of those decades, church life in China was quickly carried by the laity, by normal people in the pews in those churches. Literate and school-trained pastors were still involved in ministry, and that's important to note. They were, of course, still playing important roles in those churches. But the churches in China emphasized the training of lay leaders who were equal in their pastoral roles to those who had that formal training. So when pastors, when those formally trained pastors or any of the pastors were imprisoned or marginalized or killed— other pastors, other lay leaders were able to easily step up and and fill the void. Now, let me pause right here from the Chinese experience, and let me just examine this a little bit more. This is really, really important. I think that when I say that churches need to be intentional on training up lay leaders in their churches, it comes from this type of history. It also comes from the experience even playing out right now in places like Iran, where your most trained senior pastors have been targeted They have been marginalized. In many cases, they've been either in recent decades murdered or more commonly in recent days, they've really been pressured to abandon, to flee. A lot of their property has been confiscated. They've maybe been briefly jailed, but they had to pay exorbitant bails to get out. They've really been forced out of their communities, sometimes out of the country. And now they're going for that leadership vacuum 
But fortunately, there are some younger people that are stepping up to the plate to try to learn on the fly how to lead, how to be a shepherd of a flock. That's very challenging. I think that churches, maybe this is your church as you're listening, needs to develop a pastoral training program. If you as a church, you want to send believers that are called into ministry to seminaries, uh, of course, that's fine. But I really think we need to take a hard look at training up our own pastors. We need to develop pastoral training programs. And there's other there's churches that are already doing this. You don't necessarily have to recreate the wheel. You can look at other curricula that have been developed. You can borrow from some of it. You can add to it, supplement it with other resources, books, training materials, teachings that you want to incorporate. But I think that's a responsibility of your local church. And you can band together with other local churches in your area, train up people to be pastors, but look at doing that yourselves. Develop a a good church library. And as part of that church library, include these pastoral training materials that could be used by others over the years where people aren't having to to buy these books or spend that money. Instead, you're going to have them available through your churches. You can carve out time to do that, and it can be a lot of fun, I'm convinced. You could do it around coffees. You can meet in a coffee shop. Uh, You can meet around a grill in a backyard, discuss these readings, these topics, and train up, include them in counseling sessions, all of that. But that's something that I'm convinced that the local church really needs to be become much more adept and intentional about doing themselves and not just outsourcing or relying on seminaries or other parties to do on behalf of them. Okay, let's get back into the situation in China. So the church in China, when intense persecution began, was quickly based in home groups. These home groups were often called so-called secret groups, but they were actually well-known and really not so secret whatsoever because, frankly, it was impossible to hide anywhere when you start to have so many people following Christ, when you start to have millions of believers in these areas, these rural villages. and But here's the other interesting thing. On a practical basis, for the Chinese communist authorities, it was impossible to jail the millions of believers that were cropping up. These house churches were able to survive and thrive, not because they were hidden, but more because they were simply so numerous. There were so many of them. For the most part, the church in China was focused not on the church institution or the church building, but on evangelism. They weren't so preoccupied with their building or their properties or their institution. They wanted to share the gospel of Jesus Christ all around them. Even at the highest ecclesiastical levels, leaders never gave up their first love of sharing Jesus with those who did not know his grace and love. While conversant with Romans 13, so so they still recognize the importance of Romans 13, The house churches of China were willing to hold Romans 13 in creative theological tension with other words of Scripture. So they looked to the full counsel of Scripture when it came to obedience to the state. The church in China knew well Jesus' important teaching to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, as articulated in Luke 20, 25. But believers in China lived out what Peter and John also understood in their time of persecution— And that was to judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And that was recorded in Acts chapter 4, verses 19 through 20. The Chinese church was well aware that Satan quoted scripture to Jesus and would not allow the government to use their own Bible against them to stop them, to muzzle them, or to shut them down. In China, the persecution at times became massive, total, and acute. 
Authorities quickly imprisoned pastors, and almost immediately other leaders simply took their place. So there you go. You have those lay leaders that are able to just kind of naturally step up. Not to say that losing those leaders wasn't painful. Uh, It wasn't a source of anguish and sorrow for these churches. It's not to, to paper over it and make it seem like it's easy. I'm sure emotionally it was devastating. But as far as continuing the work of evangelism, discipling, encouraging, and helping one another, the church continued to function despite all of those pressures. Concessions were not made to the government, and because buildings were unimportant or non-existent, church groups simply moved and met wherever they could. So if one location became off-limits or confiscated and taken away from them, so be it. They pivoted and they went elsewhere, but they continued to meet, they continued to do outreach, and they continued to be the church. Okay, to be fair, China, over the centuries, China has had a history of small underground groups far more uh, than perhaps other regions. So culturally, it really wasn't difficult for them as as Chinese believers to embrace uh, more of a house church model. There is that cultural aspect of all this. And again, I'm not saying that you have to meet in a house church. You don't have to abandon your church fellowship wherever you're meeting and go to a house church. I don't go to a house church, but I do think you need to think through that. Maybe you need to develop home groups right now that are structured and you're talking through things like what does it mean to be a church, and you always have that fallback option. If pressures did hit in the coming years and you needed fallbacks like that, you you naturally have them. So that that's not a foolish act, in my opinion, right now, to think through what does a house church look like. The Chinese Christians also were committed to knowing the Word. They would memorize it. They would memorize Scripture. And so even when the authorities try to clamp down on written Scriptures, they seized Bibles, they seized other written materials— that loss in and of itself, it's, it didn't hinder the work of the church. Uh, when that happened, those stories were continued to be told and shared because of they, they were memorized. Another good takeaway is that we can be with our children, ourselves. We can be committing Scripture to memory so that it can be used if situations like this ever arose and that can counsel us in those circumstances. This was a very brief look at these two experiences over decades of history, and there's plenty of other variables that we could get into and debate, and others that they may take issue with some of what's been described, and that's perfectly fine. We're just trying to cue up these thoughts, this thinking, this possibility, so that we could be preparing ahead of time and learning from these experiences. This has to be a part of our discussion today about how church operates under hostile environments. So just to review a couple things. So while the leadership of seminary trained and professional clergy is helpful, a heavy reliance on lay-led clergy at all levels will serve the church well, especially if we are migrating, as I believe we are, into more hostile persecution climates. I think the future is going to be more intense for Christians, and so we need to be prepared to do that. So far in much of the Western world, your professional clergy are trained outside of the local church, But in areas where there's been more persecution, leaders of those churches are generally homegrown, home-trained. They're trained in their local church. We also need to recognize that it's important still to have good training in those settings. There's always the potential for false teachings to creep in if it's not provided well, if there's not some excellence in, in learning the scriptures, doctrine. But we do need to be able to train up our pastors, other lay leaders in local settings. 
small group meetings, such as like in house settings, house churches, those are often conducive to thriving even under more intense persecution climates. Buildings and property can prove to be a costly burden and are used to control the faithful. Ultimately, buildings, once they have lost their usefulness to the persecutors, are closed or destroyed. In some settings in the United States, 60% of all church giving is dedicated to interest payments on building debt. If you think about that, it's almost like we're inadvertently doing to ourselves what the persecutors were attempting to do to the Christians under the Soviet and Chinese authorities. And sometimes acute and total persecution is easier to absorb and survive than piecemeal persecution. Understanding the ultimate intent of the persecutors early and clearly assists greatly in the preparation for persecution, which is precisely what we're trying to do right now via this podcast. Covert persecution is almost always more effective than overt persecution. Overt persecution is often used when covert efforts are understood and fail to hamper the life of Christ's church. A church movement which focuses on evangelism is better equipped both to deal with persecution and to grow in a setting of persecution. It is clear that the Holy Spirit wants us to outgrow and outlove our persecutors. So there's a lot more that we could be teasing out of all of that. Again, it's a very cursory look at all of this, but I hope that this provides some thoughtful material for you to mull over in your own quiet time as you're going through the scriptures or as you're talking with your families or others in your church. I would encourage you to really take a hard look at developing some of those capacities in your local church as a family. Maybe this doesn't become live or a real important factor in your church experience for a long time. So be it. But let's be prepared. Let's be proactive. Let's be intentional beforehand so that we can respond in a biblical fashion once the pressures really become mature. So with all of that, I hope that's been helpful to you. Let us know if this kind of content and material is helpful to you and your local church, and we'll certainly be able to bring more so that we as a Christian community, wherever you are uh, around the world, that you and your local church is as strong and spiritually nourished as possible and capable of sharing the love of Christ to the community, the lost, the broken around you. God bless you. Thank you very much for your time, and have a good one. Thank you for joining us today for the Christian Emergency Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends about us and ask them to subscribe as well. To learn more about the Christian Emergency Alliance or financially invest in our ministry, visit us at www.christianemergency.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you again for listening and stand strong out there.